You're listening to The Served Up Show, a podcast that features inspiring beverage professionals and topic experts that share their passions through meaningful content. Your hostesses, Bridget Albert, is best known as the Market Fresh Mixologist, an industry mentor with over 25 years of experience. And I'm Julie Milroy, best known for my passion for leading change and helping others grow in their careers. Grab a cocktail and sit back. Let's learn how we can make a positive impact in our industry. Hello, Served Up friends. I'm thrilled to introduce Michelle Courtney Berry, the survivor of numerous traumatic events and how she rose to become the in-demand humanitarian and Renaissance woman she is today. Michelle shares her journey of keeping calm in chaos, how to work well, live well, and love abundantly, no matter what and the upcoming. Don't lean in, lay down. Why naps, better bosses, and less daily bull beep will save women's lives. She's an award-winning entrepreneur, in-demand keynote speaker, transformative trainer, business success coach, and leadership expert. Now sit back outside preferably grab a non-alk spritz and get well hi michelle thank you so much for joining me on served up today thank you julie it's really great to be here with you i've really been looking forward to this interview because i just know how relevant it is right now and and just something that i think of day to day is is my wellness my well-being mm-hmm. and i feel and and i know you've heard it over and over again probably talked about it so much that mm-hmm. since covid more people are are becoming a lot more aware and intentional about mm-hmm. the, their well-being because the world kind of forced us to shut down Um, But I know that you've been doing this work far before. So, you know, tell us a little bit about you and and where you grew up and (laughs) and how you got into the work that you do. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, Well, I I believe there aren't any accidents, right? So my parents prepared me early on for constant change. I was scheduled to, was uh, born in Manhattan, I was scheduled to, I was tested as a quote unquote prodigy, right? And was supposed to go to Hunter Prep. And um, my parents were increasingly dissatisfied with their quality of life in New York. And they had a log cabin two hours north in the Catskills. And there was an intentional community of Black and Caribbean and some white, but mostly people of color from New York City who had retired and some had retired and then, but most were just commuting on in the summer. And my father had a hunting cabin there because he's from upstate New York uh, by way of a wagon <laughs> to Ohio where he and his brothers were the only students of color in a school called Weedsport. So my dad was from upstate New York and he went to Tuskegee. He met my mom in Manhattan. She was from segregated South in uh, North Carolina, Virginia. And then she moved to New York City. So they met on the job. My mother was his assistant and Mm -hmm. he had a hunting cabin and his brothers had moved to Rochester. So where other kids were going to Miami or Barbados or, you know, uh, the Caribbean for spring break, my family was like, okay, we're going to Rochester. And I was like, okay, (laughs) different economies of scale and different income, you know? 
So um, my father had a hunting cabin, a four room log cabin in the Catskills. And he said, yeah, I think that's where I want to move. And we were like, you mean for the summers where we go? And my dad said to my mom, no, that I'm tired of New York City. That's where we're going to go. And that's where we'll raise Michelle. So I left Hunter Prep and went to uh, a school in which I was one of 10 kids of color in the entire school, a rural school called Narrowsburg Central Rural School, where it was K through 12 in one building. And there oh, were 500 uh, residents in the town. So, or the actually is too small to be a town. It was a hamlet. And then, so I had this all black neighborhood and this mostly white school. And I had to adjust to being in the country and as a young kid, like figure out different fashion sense, like nothing from, you know, the city was going to work. So I was in overalls and all the city kids who'd come up in the summer would tease me. And um, so then I decided to lead hikes and I told them I had to protect them from panthers. And uh, obviously there's no panthers in the Catskills and I would charge them you know, a buck a hike. And my mother was like, oh, this is just not Christian. And my father was like, if they don't know geography, that's not Michelle's problem. So I would do sell lemonade, lead hike. So already like early entrepreneurial interest, early leadership interest, deep connection to the to nature. And so years later, kind of navigating different environments, because once the city kids went back, I was my father was about 19 years older than my mother. So my mother retired young, like 40. My dad was already 59. So then the whole neighborhood went from 75 people to five. I was the only kid and um, everybody else was a retiree. So I had to learn how to navigate retirees who are older, play by myself and skate on a three mile lake by myself, learn how to ski with my dad who just pushed me down hills. Like that's how I learned down a mountain. He's like, there you go. He gave me like a Tuesday two minute lesson on how to ride a motorcycle and told me to integrate the all boys motorcycle riding club at age 10 to my mother's horror. So basically like my father was like, I wanted a son. I keep getting these girls. He had another daughter from a previous marriage. So he was like, you'll just be, you know, old school tomboy or whatever, you know, we don't use yes. that term anymore. But my dad was like, you're going to, he predated Nike's Just Do It by like years and years. So I wanted to impress him. I did all the winter sports with him. So as a black kid learning how to ski, ice fish, skate, snowmobile, camp, breakdown trails with my dad. And then with my mom, she's a great cook and a chef and a, a great storyteller. So I wrote stories to amuse her and she was bored because she was young. So I had to like be my mom's best friend, therapist, go to an all white school and navigate an all black neighborhood. So in a nutshell, my joke is I had to learn how to break dance, which I can't do in my neighborhood and square dance in my school. So that's really how I guess I became a health and wellness person who helps people navigate stress and change and different cultures and environments. Right. You're like, okay, so sometimes you just have to be here and you have to live. So let's make the most of it. I mean, yeah, it, it sounds incredible because, you know, I mean, I grew up in Anchorage, Alaska, so yeah, a lot of right. rural, and it's so funny that it's just, I mean, we were thrown out in nature because there's literally nothing else to do, you know? So you just go explore and, and, you know, I think, there's something so healing about nature. And I feel your dad because that's really where I'm at in my life. I'm like, can we just pick up and like move into the mountains? Because that's where I feel the most 
comfort and the most safe, you know, and, and my husband's from South Africa. So we spent a lot of time like out in the bush, middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. We were just in the Kalahari desert. And when it's, well, when you're out in nature like that, you just, it's so comforting. And you realize that all these things that we stress about and all these things that give us anxiety, mm-hmm. like none of it matters. Right. And, mm-hmm. and I think that your dad, like, recognize that from being in business and doing all this stuff and being in the city that being out in the nature. So like, I really want you to talk to my son because he's like, (laughs) no, I mean, he's 11, but he's like, he's like, no way. If I, if we're moving from Miami, I want to be in LA or New York city, (laughs) uh, 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 you know, so it's, (laughs) but that is, that is so fantastic. And then I know you're in Ithaca now, so you obviously love it because you can be anywhere you want. True. I'm, I'm not far from where Harriet Tubman, you know, did so much work in the women's rights movement and Frederick Douglass. I mean, Ithaca is really close to, you know, the Auburn and the women's uh, historic it's history museum. I'm probably saying the wrong thing, but close by Seneca Falls. And my dad is from Weedsport where he was born and that's not far away. So I feel very connected to my father and how I landed here is I went to graduate school at Cornell and I said, you know, there's like nine months of winter. I'm never returning. And it's funny about nostalgia because of that connection to the land. They say Ithaca is gorgeous. So we have, Mm -hmm. we're formed by the gorgeous and the ice age. So that to be next near where my father who died when I was in graduate school to be where Mm -hmm. a place that he loved and to be connected to nature was really important to me. So when I thought about settling down, having a family, like immediately I said, to my husband, like, we're going to live in Ithaca, right? He goes, oh, yeah, <laughs> we're going to live in Ithaca because I had fallen in love with it. And it it really drew me back. And so and I also think it's really important. I run a hiking club and I think it's in a lot of people of color come to it. It's very intersectional. It's very mixed. Mm-hmm. It's really important to reclaim the woods, particularly as a black person, because there's so many people who will not return to woods because of the devastating things that have happened to us historically in the woods. So it's really important to reclaim the land for ourselves, where we began, Mm -hmm. where we, you know, where we grew, where we farm, where we cultivate and to, you know, so I think just based on the the terrible history of lynching and what happens in the woods, it's hard to sometimes get black people in the woods again. So I think we were really trailblazers to clear land and be in the woods as a intentional black community. That community Mm -hmm. formed in the fifties and I, I grew up in the seventies and eighties. So it was really, you know, later I, I might be romanticizing it. Maybe we couldn't have bought land in the town. Like, you know, mm-hmm. like your parents might have called it intentional to soften the blow, but maybe like maybe they weren't allowing us to live in the town. Mm-hmm. But we had our own three mile lake. We had our own clubhouse. We had our own economy. We shared food. We there's different cultural meals prepared. I mean, I was just it was a really rich, I mean, from people like you'd interact with Broadway stars and legends in music and band leaders and magazine editors and writers and scholars and African history leaders and thinkers. So my neighbors were this rich font of history and culture that I would never have gotten from school at all. Yeah. I mean, that is incredible. And is the town still like that? Or I mean, what what was kind of the evolution Um, of I'll send you a documentary. And fortunately, what happened to our historically, you know, intentionally black community is and what has happened to so many. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of pressure to sell our land because the the town got 
wastewater in in their in their public water and we all had wells so there was a lot of pressure to sell our land and we just refused and we owned three sides of the lake but not the fourth side and my father was like we have to own all sides of the lake or it'll get developed but it's really hard when you've been a city person people listen to you, but it's really hard when you now live year round and you're plowing and you're trying to explain to the New York City people they have to pay for plowing. And they're like, but we're not there in the winter. It's like, who will fill the gas like for you? Like, what's how will the trucks get in to do repairs? So I think once you become a country person, sometimes city people stereotype you as not knowing as much. And so my father wasn't really listened to. And other people were saying, like, we don't need to buy that side. And so that side was bought by another developer and he used our century old dam as a bridge and um, it it caused a fissure in the dam. Meanwhile, that a lot of leadership in the town wanted us to sell that side so they could develop a campground. So we wouldn't sell the side we owned. The They wouldn't stop the developer. And it was terrible to see like bears were running out of the woods because there'd never been construction in the woods like that. And so um, with the fissure in the dam, the town called the DEC and had our 100-year-old dam ruled as dangerous and they dynamited it. So when I was 18 and uh, away at college, my dad called me home and we watched the lake drain and my father had a heart attack. And then a couple of years later, he had cancer. And he said, I think the loss of the lake is going to kill me. So he lost a three-mile lake in the Catskills, which is, you know, priceless to have our, our property values fell. People moved away. Kids didn't want to come anymore because we couldn't swim. Mm-hmm. We were older. We were planning to take over our houses and then have families there ourselves in the summer. And there was no lake. So the loss of the lake killed our community. So right now there are people, it's a mixed neighborhood now of people fighting to get the lake back, but it's too expensive. And right now where the lake used to be is a forest. So I don't think it'll ever come back. And wow. Yeah. And the interesting connection is some people in the town were getting sick because some people in the mob were dumping toxic waste in their water supply. And so there was a young woman who was about a year under me. Her father died from the cancer from the toxicity of the water. And then my father, I think, died from the grief of the loss of the lake. And years later, we had a conversation about it because she leads a program in Africa and she brought me with her and we processed like what our family legacies were and racial differences and tensions and what happened to all of our communities because more powerful people made decisions that affected our father's lives. Mm -hmm. Wow. I mean, you know, that that has happened in so many places across the country. Right. And and which is why more than ever to understand the history and the facts are so important. And this movement to just wipe out history is, is so frightening and it's happening. And, and even, you know, more in the U S right. Like right where we, we all live. And, and I feel like as they try to erase history, the more (laughs) there's interest in learning the history. Right. So um, some of these blessings come in different ways. And I've started kind of learning a little bit about the different areas like Rosewood right here in Florida, right. Mm-hmm. And, and oh, understanding yeah. what happened with that community. And there were just so many, um, black thriving, mm-hmm. amazing communities, yeah. music, mm-hmm. dance, 
fashion, gorgeous, you know, and all this stuff. Like I would want to be, those are the towns that I would want to be. And the fact that they were just every, you know, that the people in power were able to just remove these thriving communities Mm -hmm. and come in and, and just like, you know, bulldoze so that they can have more space or more of what they think is the right way to live. I mean, it's just baffling. What was the book that you referenced just so that our listeners could, could learn a little bit. You, you mentioned that there was, Oh, the documentary. Oh yes. It's, it's a, it's just called Luxton Lake Estates. That was the name of our lake and our community. And so there is a woman living there now who did a documentary and it was interesting. She asked to interview me and I really thought about it, but it was so, it was too soon after, and it was too mm-hmm. close to the skin. I, I would do it now, but I, I, I do know that it was a contributing factor in my father's declining health and death. And so it's very personal and very painful. Yeah. So the documentary is very fair and, and interviews some people who grew up going to the lake. It was, mm-hmm. it was such an important thing. And it, it's so important to have a community that looks like you, that understands you that helps you navigate systems that don't look like you and what was so clear to me is in this this attempted and you know erasure so harmful to everyone because Mm -hmm. this is everyone's history so indigenous people's history is everyone's history black people's history asian people's history it's everyone's history it's american history and Mm -hmm. i've interacted with so many white people um i have my mother my mother, my grandfather is white. I have a mixed race mm-hmm. mom. I have a mixed race child. Like we are all related, you know? So it's, it's just, it's just a sad and saddening moment for me to see the progress that we can make and the things that we're learning and sharing. Like there are so many of my white peers in school that I've interacted with and come into contact with later in life who felt so sad. Now, some don't feel sad because they agree that we shouldn't yeah. learn certain things, but a, a good majority of them feel cheated because mm-hmm. when they read different books, when they got out of the system that we were in, what we learned in school, they were like, we didn't even scratch the surface. Like these stories aren't even real. Like that's not really what happened. So I think there's this way of balancing the idealism that we were taught with the reality of what really happened to different groups. Like a lot of people really need to understand that whiteness is something that's earned in America. Like Italians mm-hmm. and Irish were not called white when they first mm-hmm. came, right? So just understanding this whole even creation and construct of whiteness is important for everyone to learn. Like, where did that come from? We didn't used to have it till what, 1620 or 1600 or something. That's just some white guy like came up with all these systems of categorizing us by skin when reality is that we're all one race, right? There is really, so race is a social construct, just like gender, but it's important for people to understand that since it's been made real, we are treated in that way. And therefore we have to treat it as real, but it's not really a real thing. It's really yeah. important for all children to learn that. I, I definitely think that the credit I give to my school is uh, I benefited because I became the exceptional minority, which is another stereotype and problem, mm-hmm. right? That the exceptional in quotes, minority in quotes, the model, minority. the model, the yeah. model. So yeah. basically mm-hmm. I was tracked ahead of white students often. I was, by the time I was in first grade, I was tested out into third and moved up to an advanced class. And so and I graduated valedictorian from my school. It wasn't without hardship. I wasn't allowed to speak. And there's been more Black valedictorians talking about what happened with their speeches 
and there'll be some weird rules. Like I spent my senior year of high school at a community college. And so they said, oh, well, only people who took English at the high school can actually speak at graduation. So my neighborhood was in an uproar and my mother was so upset and she'd done a petition to remove a teacher who was our first teacher of color. It was Latinx. So I was so excited because I never had a teacher of color, but he said really negative things about black people and Mm -hmm. was so hurtful. But the town signed a petition that my mother circulated and removed the teacher, but the principal really didn't like my mom. And he said, I like your mom and your dad. I like you and your dad, but I hate your mother and I'm going to make your senior year a living hell. So I was like, I'm just going to go to the community college for my senior year. And he did me a favor because I actually did so well at the community college that it put me to the top of the class. But then they passed a rule that because I hadn't taken English at the high school, even though I took it at the college, I couldn't compete to give the speech. And my whole neighborhood showed up. So it's all these brown multicultural faces and and everybody was saying, like, should we say something? And it's interesting about what you speak into existence. My mom was starting to cry and I said, don't cry. I'm going to get 14 awards and I have a full scholarship to many colleges academically. Don't cry because I'll speak at my college graduation. And I have to say, Julie, it wasn't until I was being interviewed by faculty, staff and administrators at Binghamton University when I went undergrad and I was interviewing. It wasn't until this whole chill came through my body and I thought, oh, I said I was going to speak at my college graduation. It's going to happen. And I was unanimously put forward to be the commencement speaker for my college. And so oh my God. I feel like in each of these many traumas, chaos, all this mm-hmm. chaos, all of this oppression, all of these hurts and pains, like the message that I keep getting back is that to just trust in the universe and trust in the goodness of people and trust into trust in yourself. So that inner voice can either tell you, I'm never going to speak anyplace else again, or it will say, I'm going to be a commencement speaker. And then I'm going to make my living as a speaker. And I'm going to one day tell the story. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think those are the stories that we need to hear, right? The perseverance and, and nothing comes easily. Nothing great comes easily. And, and it's unfortunate because we never want ourselves, people we love, our children to go through any of the heartache that we've Mm -hmm. gone through. Right. Uh, But then knowing Mm -hmm. that that suffrage created a whole new opportunity in a different way, in a bigger way. I mean, I, I can relate with that in, in so many different, um, in, in so many different ways. And I think that you know, we have grown into this system where we were told and and we've lived, you know, you talk about this community where you felt like you guys were all supportive of each other. You had the same values. You were there as like this real community. I mean, I don't feel like I've ever had that my entire life. I've always felt like we're just here visiting, you know, just mm-hmm. keep quiet, don't interrupt, you know, blend in, know how to change. Mm-hmm. And that's made me become the person that I am because I can kind of blend in and do, yep. you know, blend in with anybody, meet new people, go into different groups, figure mm-hmm. it out, know mm-hmm. how to make other people feel comfortable yeah. <laughs> before my own comfort. I, I can be a nervous wreck, but I will make sure everybody's very comfortable in their position. And it's, it's really sad. And and it's something that I still long for, you know, it's, it's having this community and and my husband keeps telling me like, you can't just move somewhere and expect that to be there. Right. And, and it is 
creating that. And, mm-hmm. um, and mm-hmm. that, so I've always felt the safe is the closest around people that are diverse like me, yeah. you know, because mm-hmm. we have so much to share. We have so much to relate mm-hmm. with. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, you and I walk into a room where people look really different or don't look like us and just immediately make other people feel at ease or start to ask questions about their lives or be curious because we will thrive in almost any environment you throw us into based on our experiences. I I, I remember heavily assimilating in school and then code switching at home or going to college and realizing, oh, this looks a lot like my high school. Like, mm-hmm. There's not many people who look like me. So what do I, and then craving that. I remember when I had my first job out of school was covering the White House and Capitol Hill as a young TV reporter um, at the White House and just being in DC. And I remember staring the whole time, like, oh, everybody was bad. <laughs> look at that. Like, I'm not used to seeing that. And so I've always felt like seeing yourself is so important. And for people who see themselves all the time, that's why they don't understand why ERGs are important. They don't understand why there's historically whatever of organizations of color or why there's communities that people crave. Because if you're used to seeing yourself all the time, you don't know what it's like until you mm-hmm. put yourself in an environment where you don't see yourself or people don't speak your language or they don't care about your history. It's a whole different ball of wax for sure. You're right. And, and you know, looking on that positive, positive, you know, the benefits of that is the ability to really understand and and be curious about different people and learning, right? And and I think that that's where, when you live in this one dimensional, very homogenous world in a very mm-hmm. non homogenous, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you think about that, and but then you choose to only be around people that look like you, that mm-hmm. think like you. Mm-hmm. You know, how are you able to take on? you know, everything that the world is throwing at you. And I, and I say that all the time. I don't know why people don't understand diversity in every single way, not just at work or not just here. It's that's what creates innovation, right? Your diverse experience, your life, all these different things creates you and what you're able to bring new thoughts, new Mm -hmm. ideas. And Mm -hmm. it's, um, it's really sad when, when people can't, can't accept that and Mm -hmm. see that as something so beautiful. Mm -hmm. And you know Mm -hmm. what I always try to say, and I'd love to know your thoughts about this is, you know, for me, it's, it's right in front of us, right? I mean, if all of us that have these diverse mindsets, right, whether it's our own experiences or what we choose to experience by exposing ourselves to different people, putting ourselves into uncomfortable situations mm-hmm. and, and being able to really genuinely want to learn more about people and see humans as humans. There are more of us than there are of them. Yes. I would think, right? So yes. how do, is there a way that we, we change that system mm-hmm. that we, mm-hmm. we just overcome those mm-hmm. that don't think that way if right. we really united. But I think, mm-hmm. you know, to your point, they're the ones that created these race segments, right? So mm-hmm. we've all kind of moved into our mm-hmm. segment right. and, yeah, and we continue to do that. So then mm-hmm. it, 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 we're smaller in numbers mm-hmm. if we, if we right. segment ourselves. Well, how do we undo it or help people see there's more of us interested in these complex conversations? Well, it's hard because many of us who've worked in media or 
marketed anything know that the attention span is his attention spans are short. We're trained to speak in sound bites and people kind of getting the same news over and over again and often the same negative news. So there's a whole wave of people who really want to continue to go forward to have these difficult conversations to unite. The the trouble is the the people who are in the smaller numbers have understood the game a bit better, which is the divide and conquer game. Mm-hmm. So very early on, very diverse groups of people, enslaved, colonized, indentured, worked together to overthrow systems. And some folks came along and was like, we can't really have these people of color or these white folks, you know, these other people of color working together. So we just mm-hmm. make one group better than the other. So we make whiteness the top, right? And we give paltry things to poor, you know, impoverished white people, but we just tell them, but you're not black, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you're not Asian. So you get, this is better, right? Mm-hmm. And so when people believe that, then we 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 break apart in our movements. We see in each of our movements, like in, in civil rights, we see, well, a lot of people can overcome their sexism, right? So, so a lot of men were overshadowing the voices of women who were leading those movements. We see in suffrage, a lot of white women didn't want to take on the race piece for mm-hmm. for women and for black women and women of color. So they were like, we'll just unite in this white piece, right? Mm-hmm. So that's why all these fractured movements exist is because we haven't learned yet to unite across the intersectionality that we represent. So in a lot of ways, I think having to understand when you undo that, when you understand those, the history behind those movements, the history, the, mm-hmm. the, the different diverse groups that always work together to make change until a more powerful, like white cis male mm-hmm. <laughs> hetero decision was made, right? Of who is right and who is wrong. So mm-hmm. if you know that part of the history and you know that those movements have been dismantled by our infighting, then I think you're less likely to infight. Right. But mm-hmm. you see the tension in all black organizations don't have total peace. Right. I mean, because we're not a monolith either. So we're all diverse, even if we share similar stories and skin or experiences or gender identities or sexual orientations. So when we see the possibility, I think that it would be really great to figure out how to champion the intersectional movements that do exist and have that become just as mainstream as fighting, as arguing, as as drama, right? Mm-hmm. So that doesn't sell as much. Positive news never sells as much. Right. As negative it's not news. as interesting. It's not as yeah. interesting. It doesn't sell. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't tick the boxes. It's not as easily marketed and farmed into clickbait. So it would have to be a strong enough movement for us to also influence many people in national and in international media to understand that there's a great story in the ways we do unite and the ways that we do intersect and have that be as sexy, right? As the mm-hmm. fact that everybody's arguing. So, and, you, and the point really is, is everyone arguing? Because I feel like there's a good chunk of majority of us who are really interested in complexity. Mm-hmm. It, the hard part is that complexity is harder to talk about in a soundbite mm-hmm. and it's harder yeah. to sell. It's just not as sexy. Complexity is not, nuance and complexity are not as sexy as saying this group doesn't like this group. They hate each other and terrible things will not happen. Like that's just an easier story to tell. Mm-hmm. But You're right. And, and it's story. a lot more. Yeah, it's a lot more work. It's a lot more energy. It's a lot more thought, you know, and, and if you want to take 
the easy path and not really have to think for yourself and just listen to talking points and let that determine (laughs) what's right and what's wrong, which Mm -hmm. is, you know, a lot of people, then that is the easier route to go. Mm -hmm. Right. And, but is that fulfilling? And, and I think sometimes I really, and it's something that I'm, I'm having to internally work on a lot. Um, in recent years here in Florida, being in a place where I loved Miami because it was so diverse. There's so many different people. You've got the Haitian community. You've got all the Europeans that have come here. You've got all the Latin Americans. And it was just so dynamic. And then to see where the politics and and where everything has been leading, you know, year after year. And, and in the end, you know, as diverse as it can be, I, I feel that people still really only worry about their bottom line, you know, Mm -hmm. and they will Mm -hmm. vote against any Mm -hmm. kind Mm -hmm. of social concern or what concerns Mm -hmm. them, Mm -hmm. their family, their Mm -hmm. siblings. But in the end, it just makes business sense to vote for this one line because that's going to affect my bottom line. Because I I got to the point where it was just like, okay, all these people and and people that I know and I love, like, they can't go this way because I know them as a person and blah, 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 you know? And so it's like, do they really think like this or is it because of their bottom line? And mm-hmm. and you realize that that's always going to outweigh. And so I get so frustrated, but yeah. what I've learned is to your point, I, I just can't be upset and angry and shocked mm-hmm. anymore. And mm-hmm. I've really got to focus inward mm-hmm. on the people I love, my family, my child, you know, and, and mm-hmm. within mm-hmm. my community that mm-hmm. I just take with me everywhere and just make sure that these are the people that we have shared values with. And I can't get caught up in, in all these other things that are just so big that we can't take it on. But then it's also like, are you giving up on this mm-hmm. movement? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't, I don't think you're giving up because it's the first step in continuously radicalizing your work is to take care of yourself and your family. So we've been taught that self-care is selfish. It's not. It's the essential building block to actually change the world. So we try to, I don't like that expression. How do you eat an elephant? I don't want to eat an elephant. Like one bite at a time, but something really huge. It's like an analogy, right? Something really huge. You can't fix the whole world until you fix your home. Until you, yeah, you start with your home, you start the base. I think that um, RBG, Ruth Bader, you know, Ginsburg said Mm -hmm. they were like, Well, how are you gonna, you know, create equality for women? She's like, One step at a time, right? Right. So you're not, you're not giving up, you're just recharging and reprioritizing the the work with DEI, with wellness, with self care is radical work. And mm-hmm. so, and getting even DEI people and wellness people to realize that those are intersecting roles. They can't mm-hmm. be pulled apart. There's not wellness over here and DEI over there. It's related. Can't really have a healthy work culture if you're not, you know, if you're not looking at intersectionality and the importance of DEI and you can't really have DEI when people don't feel engaged and healthy, right? So they're related. And so in a lot of ways, what I guess I learned this the hard way is when I first started practicing Reiki, Mm -hmm. I would have people come to me and be like, prove to me this works. And I would try to explain to them the benefits, what my other clients had seen. And then I learned after the first six months, I said, you're not my client. (laughs) I'm not proving anything to you. And so in a lot of ways, you either want to try it out and you want to give it a whirl or you don't, I'm not here to convince you. 
And so in a lot of ways, it's, I don't want to spend my time trying to convince people who are never going to want to have a reasonable conversation, but because I have friends across all the aisles, I, I was a black woman Democrat as a spokesperson in a Republican administration, a Republican mayor reappointed me. I thought he was going to fire me and I was looking forward to unemployment at the time, a few months off. And after the Democrat didn't win, the Republican reappointed me. And we're friends to this day. That taught me a really important le- lesson in working across the aisles, working with different parties, working with different opinions. Like I can work with people that I disagree with any day, as long as we can have a reasonable conversation and not some troll-filled, hate-filled, threatening. The, the way in which speech is being threatened, if someone doesn't agree with you, is problematic. And, and I think that's unfortunate. So I have I really struggle with when people just can't have conversations with things that people they disagree with because I've never had that luxury. Mm-hmm. I've always been thrust into environments in where I'm not sure I will be seen, heard, or I'm or I'll be stereotyped and misunderstood, or I'll have to disprove a stereotype before you pay attention to me. I've always had to work 10 times as hard. So mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, I get impatient with people who have had the grace of being automatically listened to being mm-hmm. intolerant to listening. It's like, you've always had people listening to you. Now it's time to just be quiet and listen. But I don't believe in shoving things down people's throats. I don't believe in, you know, spending all the time preaching to the choir either. Like just talking mm-hmm. to people who agree with me all the time isn't going to move the needle. So in a lot of ways, I'm the surprise you didn't see coming. Like in a lot of ways, like a lot of my clients are white men. Like in, mm-hmm. people are like, oh, I thought your clients were all black. It's like, well, we're a much smaller part of the process. And I don't know if I could be in business, right? Like if they were, you know, maybe like if I had- Like they already get it. They're like, yeah, I know. I feel you. Like, yes, yes. Everything you just said, is not shocking. Like it's, I can relate in many different ways. Mm -hmm. It's, that's, wow. I mean, I I, I think your perspective on all of that is just, um, it, it really opens up the dialogue, right? It's, it gets people talking, getting out of their comfort level. And you're right. I, I, you know, I think we have another, you know, woman leadership conference that we're going to next week and there's a panel and all stuff. And and I think my question was like, when do we stop talking to ourselves? You Mm -hmm. know, like Mm -hmm. we're all talking about amazing things, but Mm -hmm. we all agree. Like Mm -hmm. we're all, uh, we get it. Mm -hmm. The people that don't that we mm-hmm. want to change aren't mm-hmm. showing up, mm-hmm. you know? So how do you, how do you get their attention? And is that our responsibility is to get their attention? Yeah. I mean, I think you decide earlier on, like, I just know from working across the aisles that there were certain things at the local level, we weren't going to disagree about. We weren't going to disagree about how roads and bridges are. When I worked in government, I was a spokesperson mm-hmm. for a mayor. We're not going to disagree about how roads and bridges are fixed, how infrastructure, you know, should happen, what the timetable for filling potholes looks like, if we should have a flag raising on Ukrainian, you know, holy day. Like, there's no argument, right? Like, we're going to do yeah. those things. At the national level, we do break down quite differently. So there's certain things that we just be like, well, we're not going to see eye to eye about these things about women, right? Or we're not going to see eye to eye about these things. But can we agree to these conversations? And I remember when I was first elected, I was on city council in Ithaca. And I remember some of my 
very liberal colleagues saying like, this is the radio station we don't go on, right? Because they have Rush Limbaugh. That's And I'm like, that's exactly the station I want to be on, actually. Like, I already know everybody on these other stations are going to agree with me. So I would go on this conservative radio station once a month and really duke it out with the announcer who became a good friend of mine because I would challenge him and I would say, okay, here's the stuff we're not going to agree on, but can we talk about this? Can we agree these things are wrong? Or can we agree these things are worth examining. And there would be mm-hmm. conservatives from the region like calling me up and being like, you're the only liberal I listen to. And I'm like, well, that, whatever. Like, I don't even want to have that label. Like, I'm I'm, I'm pretty sure I am, but I'm not to the left of Karl Marx. Like, I'm someplace mm-hmm. center and we can find our way together here. Like, there's a lot of times when I feel like even the divisive nature of what party we may be or not, like, There are times when I'm like, if I could win as an independent, I probably would have run on that line, right? Like, but you know, in certain regions, you either have to be Democrat or Republican to win. Like this this two-party system is often as constraining as binary thinking, as often as, you know, right? Like there's a right and a wrong and black and white or you're, you know, it's just, life is so much more multidimensional. People are so much more multifaceted than just one or two labels. You're right. And and for me, the longest time, you know, I've grown up um, where my father just decided to be super conservative and Republican and get caught up into that. I mean, I was like 11 and he bought me a Rush, Rush Limbaugh book. I was like, I will never read this. And I didn't understand back then because I wasn't caught up in that, you know, and when I was a teenager, nobody was talking politics. Right. And so I was always like, I'm an independent, I'm an independent thinker, blah, blah, blah. But we get into legislation and and where we are in today's world. You can't be, you have to pick one or the other, you know, and it's, I agree with you. I think this two party power, two powerful party system creates more of a divide, right? Because now you have to pick one because, you know, when you do talk to somebody across the aisle, or maybe they have a different political preference or, or they, prioritize different things, you know, in society and and in business than you do. When you really talk to somebody and you understand that there are some things that you do agree on, right? And then you can kind of see like, okay, I get what they're saying and their perspective. And I think it's just being able to have that your guard down and um, be willing to mm-hmm. hear another side and and possibly mm-hmm. get to that middle point. And I think mm-hmm. it probably does happen, you know, more at a local level mm-hmm. than just trying to do it all in one switch from a national perspective. Exactly. And I believe we have to be open to some of the critiques, right? There's some programs that we fund that we find out later didn't really do what we hope they do. And one was the D.A.R.E. program, which I don't know if you remember this, but would get police officers to be in the schools and they might dance to music with kids to get kids more likely to interact with police officers and learn about the danger of drugs. And so it was supposed to be a drug abuse resistance Mm -hmm. education program is what D.A.R.E. stood for. Now, when you did the studies later, many liberals funded D.A.R.E. D.A.R.E. didn't decrease drug use with students, right? Necessarily. But later we get so defensive. We're like, but D.A.R.E. was good. It got kids and getting to. And I said, why don't we just say it didn't do what we wanted to do around drug use, because that's a more complicated variable than just a cop coming in with some music and getting to know the kids. But it opened up conversation with youth, with police officers to have a relationship 
that wasn't based on fear, right? Or wasn't based on intimidation, but was based on like, oh, you're here dancing with me. Like, so if it it improved police community relations, then say that's the part of D.A.R.E. that worked. And I remember I was out with a D.A.R.E. officer on a program and he was just dancing and he goes, the fifties were just a better time. And I said, oh, when I couldn't vote, like I yeah. seriously, like, and he was like, mm-hmm. oh, cause in his mind, there was nothing wrong with the fifties, right? That was super great. And so, mm-hmm. and then we had this conversation back in the car, but later, like we had troubling incidents with police, but what I asked to do was become certified to be a police trainer. So mm-hmm. I was like the first black woman to ever enter some of these spaces in these rural areas with cops. When I got to know them, because I was scared of police and I didn't talk to them, you know, but they mm-hmm. didn't talk to me, right? They were only like, if they saw me, but in their mind, somebody they would arrest, right? So when we had these conversations, I found out like how many cops didn't like each other, Italian versus Irish, or what region you're from, or who was from downstate, or who was from upstate. Like there was far more battling and far more gossiping and far more like, I was like, wow, there's a lot of pettiness here, like, like peeling that apart. And then what really struck it hit my heart was I did a survey of community residents of color and police officers. And I found that there were almost identical overlay between feeling judged by how you look. Mm-hmm. They wear the uniform. People think this one thing about police officers, not all police officers and people of color can't take off skin, right? So they talk about being treated. So this terrible intersection that happens between police officers and people of color, no one would really know in that moment, right? Like there were so many similarities between how people felt they were judged and stereotyped and discriminated against. And you would think all these cops had all this ultimate power. Why would they feel this way? And later, they would often talk about feeling powerless, or many of them had joined police work because they had been abused as kids and Mm -hmm. then bullied, and they wanted Mm -hmm. power. The startling thing that happened every time is they would list stereotypes, biases, and actual like dislike they had for different groups, different people, different ethnicities. But they would not link those biases with their arrest record or their abuse record of those communities. So there was a complete mm. cognitive dissonance between those things. And I would think, oh, you know, and, and so recently I've been thinking, I want to unearth that research because it's over 30 years now and none of those people are in the force and they're all retired and I can just mm-hmm. write ambiguously, but I want that information out there because I think so many people don't do ride-alongs. They don't know any police officers. They don't want to, right? And a lot of police officers feel very retrenched right now. And I even think about the defunding like name. Mm-hmm. It was never designed to defund all state police departments. Yeah. So I thought, why was it even called that? It was talking about reallocating money because cops will tell you they don't want to, they fail when they get asked to be social workers. Yeah. They, they make mistakes. They kill when, when they're social service people, they just, that's not their training. And so we need to reallocate those funds to places where people can support police officers in that work. But it's tricky being a black woman and being like, well, I've worked with police officers who know them. They're not all the same. Like, because the problem is that if you say it's about the bad apple theory, yeah. the problem is the whole system is built on this weird system. Like people don't even know it comes from slave catching or union busting, or, you know, they don't even mm-hmm. understand like the history of police work in America was built on a whole different system, right? Of oppression. So, and then, you know, they don't, even know the police officers who don't like each other and the intergroup rivalry there by class, by ethnicity. So until you really get in that system and, and talk to police officers, you don't really understand. And then the police officers of color have a different burden because when they take their uniform off, they're just people of color in the street and they often get killed by police officers. So the, mm-hmm. this is really um, such a hot button issue in, in America. And 
I do think that we needed more conversations and to really try to understand getting into the police mind is really complicated. And when we ask police officers to report on each other, they're also in danger too when they do yeah. that. Like this kind of mob mentality does exist. Uh, paramilitary mob mentality exists in our forces. So, but I've actually worked with police officers and trained them and talked to them and had them confide in me and tell me the times that they're scared of other cops. So it's a lot more complicated. And then you add the black, brown, indigenous body on that and just it's just too complex. Like it's just, that's a story that has so many nuances and complexity and it just, it isn't getting told. Yeah. And, and it's, it really is that right. Is we're trying to take a system that was built on oppression and it was built on the powerful have control over the, the poor, the unpowerful. And how do we continue that? And then at the same time, we want to be a country of progress of, you know, we're always getting better as a country, um, you know, as the United States of America, you know, one of the youngest countries that are supposedly thriving and, and innovation and all of this. But we're trying to take these systems that were built on something that was not fair and equal, and we're trying to turn it fair and equal, but it's mm -hmm. not you you really can't right you can't change and and everybody just feels you know and how many times have you heard well don't break what you know don't don't break what's working and it's working well is it really working and <laughs> well, depends and then, on who it's working for right right and then do we go back to the UK and Great Britain right where a lot of this started right when you when you think about the monarchy and and just going back in history and what kind of a police system they had. Right. And then all of a sudden we're supposed to create this new America that's not repressed, but then we fall back into those very similar systems mm -hmm. and say that we're different, you know, and, and I love how everybody now points their finger at the U S but I'm like, no, 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 no. This all came from yeah. Yeah, yeah. From at, you, back, you know, the, and, the and, now the, right, and now all of a sudden yeah. we're the, well, we're mean, the ones that created racism, yeah, you know, God, and we're the ones that have a problem with it when, <laughs> when their systems, it's just like, it's yeah. in bed, you know, it's, it's yeah, yeah. part of life. Yeah. Untangling it all. I remember a client the other day said like, I feel like everything that's going on with me right now is like a bowl of spaghetti. Like everything is tangled together. And I thought that's a really great analogy. Show me, bring me a picture of your ideal bowl of spaghetti. Like, what does that look like? It's, it's also tasty, but it also is complicated, right? Those strands are all interwoven, but which parts of that spaghetti bowl could you pull, which threads could you pull out that would be yours to own and mm -hmm. what isn't yours and helping my clients distinguish between what you can control and what you can't, because we often fixate on what we can't control because that's easier than the stuff we can. Like, I, if, if you put your partner, politics, weather, and you, you know, your boss on the list of what you can control, you're going to be very stressed out because mm -hmm. you can't, those are all other people, but you can control your reactions to other people and you can control certain parts of how you want to show up in the world. And there's a lot of people who laid their lives down so we could even have this conversation. Mm-hmm. They did. I mean, death has happened, right? So that we could yeah. have this conversation. There are some places we couldn't even talk about some of these things, right? So mm -hmm. there's like America's pretty young 
I think if we think of ourselves as old, but we're still in experiment. Mm -hmm. And I refuse to believe that we're going to have to have a civil war again. It seems mm -hmm. so ridiculous to me, right? But there are, there's some people when I've traveled around this great country, I'm like, oh, wow, let me like regroup. Like there are times when I'll just go to give a talk and I'm like, wait, I'm with a group that doesn't believe in cl climate change. Whoop, I'm with a group that doesn't believe COVID happened. I'm like, all right, let me reframe what I'm going to talk about. Like it's, I'm trying to win people over. I'm not trying to fight with them, right? So I'm like, okay, that's what you believe, but let's like talk about this. Like yeah. what we can often come to terms with is people care about their families. And, but they, it's interesting. They might care about their family safety, but they might vote. They might care about women and their family safety. You were talking about something that really cultivated this reminder for me. I had a lot of intense time with a Trump supporter when I was actually in orthodontry. So my orthodontist was talking about Trump during the time. And, uh, and I was like, this is a great opportunity for me in Ithaca because you're not going to have a lot of people admit that. And so, mm -hmm. you know, he's working on my mouth, so I can't say anything, right? He's in there he's with and I have. I got adult braces, you know, a few years ago. And so I had to listen a lot because you can't really talk when somebody's working your mouth. But when I'd have those moments, I would say, okay, so you have a pretty much majority woman business here. Your family, your parents are immigrants. They don't speak English. You translate for them. Um, you are part Middle Eastern and American. And I would mm -hmm. say, so around these values you have for women, you definitely have your woman as a, your, your partner is a woman who's a co-partner in the business. And I would say like you have daughters, like, so I'm just asking you around like women and around these issues. And he clearly said to me, he just said, I know, like he doesn't support any of those things, but I think it'll be better for my business. And I started talking to him about the luxury of that. Like, I can't make those decisions, right? Like, you know, I just, you know, I have a trans, you know, mixed race son. Like I, the, how I vote is good. It needs to support him. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah. So I just said, I can't dice my life up like that. Like talk to me more about it. So we kept in conversation over three years. The mm -hmm. only thing I drew the line was I'm like, I'm not watching this inauguration. Like we're going to put something else on TV. I'm not doing it. But yeah. I had, I interacted with people who were in a fairly liberal place, brave enough to tell me that they were conservative or why, but the way that they split the hair, I just thought I couldn't do it. Like that mm -hmm. vote is making a, like there are people who died so I could have this conversation. I have to remember them in how I vote. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think it's, there are a lot of people that do compartmentalize because mm -hmm. they, you know, they care about all those things, you know, that you had just mentioned the conversation mm -hmm. you had, but then it's like, okay, well, I got to choose one or the other. And it's still <laughs> this, yeah. this thought of, it's about in the end, mm -hmm. it's about me taking care of my family and the best mm -hmm. way I'm going to do that, not to help them maintain their rights. It's mm -hmm. to provide money on the table, right? right? Or, or make yeah, sure that, you know, mm -hmm. I'm not paying 42% in taxes, I'm paying 40% or whatever, you know, right. and, and they make those decisions. Mm -hmm. And I think going back to kind of when we talked about earlier, for some people, it's just easier to do that, right? Mm -hmm. Than to actually really come to terms with how you think and how you act. And, and that's, and, you know, that's kind of the choice I make is making sure I can do everything possible for my family, for what I value in society, voting that way, but also, you know, just um, really focusing in on what does work and what makes this life that we choose so great and choosing joy and things that bring me joy than just getting caught up. I mean, I 
you know, I'm going to be meeting with one of the executives that's also a chief of um, the Miami-Dade County Public School System because I see what's happening with the school system. And I'm just like, I'm a parent. Like my child goes to the school. I need to be involved. We've got groups of people joining school boards and like a very consorted effort. Mm-hmm. And they don't even go to the school. Their kids don't mm-hmm. even go to the school, mm-hmm. you know? So it's, mm-hmm. but I want to do it in a very meaningful way. And I want to do it, even if it's just like that one little step that I can do, it's that one place that I can be involved. What can I do mm-hmm. that could help mm-hmm. in some way? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but we're, if, if we're thinking it's all or none, we're just mm-hmm. going to come out there and change everything you get defeated really quickly. You burn out, you get exhausted, you get bitter, you get skeptical, you get, you know, you get sick, right? Your immune system, you know, gets suppressed. I mean, the best thing I could say is that from living, I mean, from, you know, from relatives in the South to living most of my time in the North, but working in the South visiting, I think the South gets a bad rap because I've lived in the North a long time. And I think we just cover more of our stuff mm-hmm. there. I was at school board meetings constantly we have more covert isms here. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the best ways you can see it in the city that I live in is gentrification. Historically, Black or Indigenous neighborhoods are no more. Housing prices so expensive to live here. I often say, if I'm going to pay Manhattan prices, why don't I just go back to Manhattan? Like mm-hmm. it's extremely expensive to live, and we're we're in a place that is having climate change effects, but not as drastically. So we're having a lot of people come here, just pay cash for houses. So our house is really expensive to us, but in California, houses are a million dollars, right? So just put our mm-hmm. house on the market and a person just paid quarter of a million in cash, right? Mm-hmm. Like just had that in the bank. No big deal. So yeah. no big deal. That's a cheap house to somebody from California. Mm-hmm. So economies of scale, right? But there are things that I've seen and witnessed in very liberal places that are hush hush. And people will say later, yeah, we say the right things and we have the right conversation and we use the right I statements. But if you really look at who can afford to live here, lower income, white or people of color cannot afford to live here. It's extremely expensive now. It's a have and have not. And also it's an unnatural environment too, where you might see someone, one of uh, another chief and I just Mm -hmm. had um, lunch yesterday and she was laughing, saying to me, like, we normalize that she's at her kid's baseball game. And like everybody who's volunteering coaching has a master's degree, right? Mm-hmm. Like we just yeah. like, you know, a higher education, we've got Cornell here. So almost everybody was like, you know, we got an award once from Utney Readers, like most enlightened city. And I think we took it seriously, it really went to our heads. So then we kind of think, what work do we have to do? We live here. I mean, I've yeah. presented models of better ways to communicate with citizens from when I worked in, in politics in Binghamton. And people said, oh, Binghamton, like, yeah, we're better than Binghamton, aren't we? And I'm like, oh my God, like, you know, so in a lot of ways, we live in a place where everyone feels super smart and they have to be heard all the time. There's like a million meetings, a million mm-hmm. perspectives, like being elected here was complicated because there's a million perspectives. But I would just say, this is what I think we have to do. This is what I think is best. This is what I'm hearing from people. But you put me in office to make a decision. And I think we have to make the decision that serves the majority, right? And we just can't mm-hmm. have all these fringe elite kind of conversations, like for some people who can't afford to put food on the table, our highbrow conversation is not helping for the gentrification that we do is extremely discriminatory. So we need to look at that pattern, right? So Mm -hmm. I'm always calling out my city and just saying, hey, look, I've lived lots of places. It's still racist here. And so if you look at how few of us think until recently, I was the only 
living. There was one black woman ahead of me, but I was the only, she passed away. She asked me to run her seat because she was dying. Mm -hmm. I I was the only black woman who had been elected to the city council in Ithaca in its history, uh, who was still alive. And there was just a woman who came a couple of years ago, but I had been the only for like the last 15 years. Mm-hmm. So it's just, you know, and there's only a handful of us, like there might be 10 of us of color who are elected to higher office here. So if this is the lower numbers you're seeing in very liberal places, I think we have to take our medicine too. So pointing yeah. fingers at the South and what they're doing, we, mm-hmm. we actually we're just a little bit more covert about our discrimination here. We use the right words, but we do the same levels of isolation. We're not banning now, we love to talk about DEI here. We're not going to ban it. But we also don't have enough people of color in higher positions. Like when I had to go back to work during COVID, I became a C-level employee for a credit union. I was a CMO and I was the first woman of color at C-level in 42 years. Oh, my goodness. And this yeah. is a liberal. City. And this is and a very liberal. liberal yeah. Where liberal everybody. Place. Right. Because as long as you have one of us, then you're yeah. all set, right? Well, don't you're we have a black woman over yeah. there? Are we good? Yeah. So I just want to say that um, people who've lived here and lived elsewhere have called us into question and, and, and mm-hmm. about those kind of numbers, right? That mm-hmm. kind of statistic. Yeah. And I think it's it's so relevant, you know, across the board everywhere. You know, you think of Oh, you know, California, LA, everybody's so liberal and it's all about, you know, this great opportunity. And yet there's just, and you know, streets of homeless people and people that can't afford to live there. And, mm-hmm. and it happens everywhere, right? Just like people pointing their fingers at the US, you guys have such problems. You're so racist, but like they figured out a way to like work it out and make it, you know, um, normal. And I say, you know, we were, um, cause my husband, I mentioned is from South Africa and, you know, we go down there and it was always like, Oh, you know, as soon as we get there, go to Johannesburg, it's like, get out in the bush because it's just, you know, mm-hmm. dangerous. There's all kinds of stuff going and And like, I've gone now, you know, I think we've been like, I've been like five different times with him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this time we were in the city for a little bit longer than we normally are. We went out to this like farmer's market it was like massive and it really represented the people, right? Majority black, but there were white people, there were Asian, Middle Eastern, like just, it was this mix. And it was like, I felt so at home and so comfortable. And I'm like, you know what? We always say we can't just move to Africa. Like, no way. Like we're going to stay in the U.S. because the U.S. is like, you know, there's just like longevity and there's just so much turmoil and in South Africa. And and it's like, why is one better than the other? Mm -hmm. Like we all have our issues Mm -hmm. and at least the culture there, everybody is just like happy and enjoying nature and and getting together. And I feel like we just don't have that yet. We have the people that talk about DNI and they know all the right things to Mm -hmm. say and they, Mm -hmm. they're pushing it forward. But like when you go home and you hang out with your friends and you look through your Rolodex of people Mm -hmm. that you actually like Mm -hmm. spend time with, what does that look like? Mm -hmm. And I can Mm -hmm. guarantee you most of it looks the same, looks just like them, you know? And I just, I think that there's a lot of that. There's a lot of saying the right things and, Mm -hmm. you know, putting up the act, but then when, you know, you go home and close the doors, it's, it's the same. Mm -hmm. In the quiet, which a lot of us avoid, 
is your deep purpose trying to shine through your hunger inside yourself. And so that's why we surround ourselves with noise or devices or Mm -hmm. don't want complexity because there is a calling. There's a reason why we're all here. There's a purpose. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes if people immerse themselves in that quiet purpose in what their heart was telling them to do, to be, thinking a lot of people are afraid of that. So they tune that out. But when you really, when that's why retreats are so wonderful when we get those mm-hmm. opportunities to, to take people into retreat, into nature, to really like see what does their heart tell you? And, and you have to, I remember my time in Africa was so informative because first of all, I just saw tons of arable land and, you know, I was in Mozambique and then I was in South Africa mm-hmm. and just this one program leader just took us around and you could just see enough arable field to feed everyone. Like there were pictures, uh, there were, you know, moments of you could see people like on the images of starvation, but it was not the predominant image, right? Like I had always been fed, like everybody's starving and like, you know, needs our money. And there is one, there was one field that still gives me chills to this day where it's just a field of rusted equipment that the West has sent without asking what did the people need. So they didn't know how to use the equipment that was sent. So it just rusted. It made us feel good to send it, but we never did. So this program that I went with and they let me be a fellow in from my childhood friend is called Could You? And it was about African-led approaches to investment and brought American business people over to have conversations, but it was African-led or it was micro-lending or it was an African woman talking about what they really what she really needed on the farm or was a a young man talking about what he really needed in his business. But because it was indigenous and African led, the West was able to better direct funding from what people actually needed. And I I watched um, people trying to rebuild a middle class in Mozambique. And I watched like these little kids running out. We got to deliver newspapers and they had been having, the newspaper was finally free from this businessman who made that decision. And I watched like little kids crying, grabbing at the paper and because they had to choose in the past between the paper and bread. And I was like, I never be in this position. <laughs> like sometimes I don't want to read the paper, right? But I can get it and I don't have to choose between that and bread. And um, I just, so we went from orphanages to the delivery of paper to the trying. And then we learned about the history of what happened with the wars with the Portuguese when they left, like kind of pouring all of the cement down the wells, right? So that's why they couldn't farm again. And so learning kind of rebuilding Mozambique and then going on a safari in South Africa, where there's like a private plane that takes you to the safari, you know, and just being out in nature and like seeing an elephant and realizing like, that's actually an elephant. I'm not at Bush gardens. Like I'm not in this control. That's actually a leopard that could kill me. You know, like just um, having that experience, I ended up writing a play called motherland about being a mom, but also going to Africa for the first time and really having my eyes opened about how Africa is so huge. It's not, you know, the monolithic descriptions of Africa are ridiculous. There's some people who call Africa a country and I'm like, what? Like it's a massive continent. It's very mm-hmm. different. And like meeting South Africans and having them talk about their story. And I went on a safari with South, Af- South African men who've always worked that safari in that land and having them talk about their experiences and the apartheid and then having uh, white African, South African women talking. And it's really interesting when white women call themselves African, right? And it's like, oh yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. Like you live there mm-hmm. too. And so just having your mind open through travel, through 
listening to people about their experiences with war, with famine or with starvation or with, you know, arable land and how to farm it and micro lending. Like it was such a rich experience that I hope to go back, like going, I took a flight that was the nonstop from JFK for for 24 hours. I I learned also that one should order kosher food regardless of diet. Like people who ordered kosher food were eating really the best. Yeah. 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 I was like, I'm not going to order this again. What I got was not edible. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. I know it's, you know, it's, it is fascinating. And I just love that you've had so many of these different experiences and we haven't even been able to get to your book. It's okay. And so I, I mean, it's, there's just so much, I feel like we've only scratched the surface. Like there's so much more to talk about. Tell us quick, tell our listeners how they can find you because everybody, Michelle does incredible speaking engagements and can dive into this. And I know that you've spoke to a lot of, um, and helped a lot of, you know, big companies kind of navigate some of these challenges Mm -hmm. of bringing wellness to work and changing Mm -hmm. that culture. Um, so tell us really quickly, your book, Keeping Calm and Chaos, how to, work, calm. how to Work Well, Live Well, and Love Abundantly, no matter what. You get it on Amazon. And my website is michellecourtneyberry.com. So two L's in the shell, C-O-U-R-T-N-E-Y.com. And I really hope that you'll reach out to me and talk to me in the contact page of my website. I really look forward to getting feedback and hearing what really motivates you and drives you to live a healthier life. Amazing. I think um, we'll definitely have a bunch of listeners wanting to learn more because you've got, you've like thrown out some nuggets and I want to like dive in deeper and you know, there's, there's just so much more to talk about and I'm love and, and so happy that you were so open with your story and your experiences. Cause I know that our listeners, we always say we have one listener that can relate and be inspired (laughs) to just you know, really go after what drives them and their passion and and put yourself into uncomfortable situations because that's where the growth happens. I think you're definitely an example of that. Well, thank you, Julie. You're just wonderful. I'm just so impressed with all that you do and the ways that these conversations, I've been listening to your podcast and following you in the news and your humility and your grace are just wonderful things to behold. And I just really appreciate you creating the platform so that we can dive in and have these conversations that are comfortable, even if they're about difficult things. And I think that's the, that's the heart of the work that you do. And you bring that forward, you bring your heart forward and all that you touch. It's really impressive. Well, thank you. That means so much. And, you know, it's, it doesn't just happen overnight. I think we, we both know that. I mean, for me, it took me a very long time to open up. It was a lot easier to just do what you need to do, do it well, and then leave, right? Like a, mm-hmm. like a ghost in the night. And I just <laughs> learned that, you know, it's, it's nice. That's one of the good things with age is that. There's no shame. So that's, that's kind of my motto is the shame goes out the window, but, um, and we, we have a lot to give. You have a lot to give. And I just love that, that you continue giving. And, um, I can't wait to get up to Ithaca and come check out your neck of the woods. Oh, I please will do. definitely I, make a point. I'll, I'll send you a note. I have an idea of how I think we can co-collaborate. Let's do it. Yeah, I'm in. I'm in. Yeah, we perfect, can great. we can definitely put something. I, lo- I love co-collaborate. Retreat. It implies instead of just collaborate, co-collaborate implies co-conspirators. Yes. Yeah. Like we're we're like 
We got a new we're, word. We're, we're getting into trouble together. We're both yes, taking good, ownership good in trouble. it. Good trouble. That's the only <laughs> good type, trouble. right? Good trouble. I like it. I'm kind of thinking maybe like retreat. Oh, I've been thinking oh. that. Oh, I've been thinking retreat. Okay. So I'm going to send you a note. I, I have the perfect thing that we can do. Love it. Well, thank you so much, Michelle. It was wonderful talking to you and we will be seeing each other again soon. Very soon. Thank you so much. Be well. You too. Cheers. (laughs) Cheers. Thanks for listening. Served Up is brought to you by Southern Glazers Wine and Spirits. Produced by Zunu.online. Music by We Kill the Lion can be found on Spotify. Make sure to subscribe to be notified of future Served Up episodes. Cheers!